0: In Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul makes a statement that has become our confidence as well. He, he writes, it's verse 6 of Philippians chapter 1, he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And then a little bit later in Philippians, after he proclaims in chapter 2, the the beginning of chapter 2, after he proclaims the work of Christ on the cross, explaining that, that Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross to the glory of God the Father, Paul then says this, he says, therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I'm pointing this out today here, right at the very beginning, because as we work through this next section of Titus, it's probably going to feel a little bit like law. It's probably going to feel a little bit like rules for Christian living, at least for a little while, which is exactly what it is. But it's also important to remember that while you are To use the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians, while you are working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, it is God who is working in you and he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So keep that in mind as we work through this. Now if you have been around churches for any length of time, particularly Reformed churches or churches that place a strong emphasis on the, on the high or lofty view of Scripture, I'm guessing that you've heard sermons about the biblical qualifications for elders and deacons, either from 1 Timothy chapter 3 or from here in Titus. I'm guessing that you've heard maybe even multiple sermons about these before. But if you've already heard this, and even I've preached through this myself more than once, but if you've already heard this, does that mean we should skip over this part? Should you have just stayed home today because the sermon isn't just that practical for your life or it's something you already know? Maybe you're an elder and you wish you stayed home for other reasons. Is this sermon going to be any different from all of the others that you've already heard but before we allow ourselves to go down a cynical road there right let me ask you a different question the question is this do you need elders not I'm not asking does the church need elders I mean do you personally need elders do you need leaders who will watch over your soul as those who will give an account to God Whatever your answer is to that question, God believes that we do. We, all of us, God believes that we all do, so much so that he gives us these qualifications for ministry in two different books of the Bible, as well as a lot of other passages that that at least point to the character of our leaders, his under-shepherds, those who are caring for the souls of the sheep bought with Christ's own blood. So if you're not already there, turn to Titus chapter 1. We're going to be looking today at verses 5 through 9. I want to read this and pray that God would give us what we need today, that he would feed us with, as Peter says, pure spiritual milk of his word that we might grow up into salvation. So I'm actually going to read beginning in verse 4 down through verse 11. So Titus 1.4 says, To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Let's just stop and pray again. Father, I do pray that you would give us what we need today. I pray that you would feed us from your word, feed our souls. I pray that you would be working to renew our minds as the Spirit works in us using your word today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week as we began this section, we we looked at the office of elder. And we saw that the elder is one who exercises oversight or rules well as God's steward, his household manager. And the elders are, are also called to use the scriptures to shepherd the flock of God. 1 Peter chapter 5, to pastor the church through what are sometimes called the, the ministry of word and sacrament. The elders are to see that the word of God is preached, that it is taught, that baptism and the Lord's Supper are rightly administered to God's people, that God's people might be fed. And as we looked at the characteristics of the office that we can see here in Titus, we saw, namely, that there is a... There's a plurality of elders as soon as possible, multiple elders in a church, that those elders are local, they're in every town, Paul tells Titus, or in every church, and that they are men. There are men leading the church as, just as there are husbands and fathers who are leading our families. And as we finished last week, I left you with two charges. One specifically to the men of the church and the other to the church in general. Let me give you those two charges again. The first for the men was from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. This is a charge for the men of this church and specifically today for your elders or those who will one day be elders. Paul says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. And to the church, last week I gave this charge. It's from Hebrews thirteen seventeen. 17. The, the preacher of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And I want to I wanna pick up there, right there, and, and be very clear about two things. First, the elders that we are called to obey and to submit to there in verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 13, those leaders are specified in verse 7. So Hebrews 13, 7, just before that verse, it says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus has given you elders to watch over your souls. And this brings us to the second thing that I want to be very clear about, and that is this. We are called in Scripture to consider the outcome of the way of life of our leaders and to imitate their faith. Therefore, Titus chapter one is not simply a passage of Scripture only for the elders to pay attention to, or for that matter, 1 Timothy chapter three. This is a pattern for all of us to be following. If you're a Christian, it doesn't matter if you aspire to the office of elder or deacon or or even deaconess, and we can talk about that some other time. If you're a Christian, this is a passage of scripture for you, a passage of scripture that directly applies to you. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness, that you may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, this is a passage of Scripture for the followers and not just the leaders. And the text even tells us this. How do I know that? Look at verses 10 and 11. Let me me read these again. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. There are leaders, teachers, who should not be followed. (laughs) And all of us follow someone, right? In fact, in every church or, or every business or every organization, in every team, in every classroom, there are leaders. So the issue for us today is what kind of leaders should we follow? What kind of leaders should we have? If you're still not convinced, if you, if you still don't understand how this applies to the rest of the church, just listen to the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 15 to 17, he says, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere and in every church. He says again in in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In Philippians chapter four, verse nine, of what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is important for us. At the end of his life, he writes to Timothy, Paul does in 2 Timothy Chapter three, verses 10 and 11, and he reminds Timothy, he says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. But not only are we told to imitate Paul as he imitated Christ, he said the same thing to Timothy and to Titus, 1 Timothy 4. He says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. And then in Titus chapter two verses seven and eight, he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. These things are of vital importance to us. This is how discipleship works. Paul says imitate me as I imitate Christ. He tells Timothy I pass it on to the next generation. Continue to imitate Christ. These are foundational building blocks of discipleship and these are important. Because look at verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That verse is about the elders protecting the household of God from both external and internal threats, theological threats. But that verse could easily be applied to husbands and fathers, could it not? protecting our own households. And so as we have seen, this whole letter is about discipleship. Therefore, it's very important that those whom we are called to imitate demonstrate spiritual competence, character, and commitment. Spiritual competence, character, and commitment. Look again at verse five. Titus 1, five. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He says, put what remained into order. A a literal translation of this, this idea of putting it into order, it it means set in order. This is a physician setting a broken bone. Titus is charged with, with setting straight certain doctrines and practices. And as we can see, Paul points out what is broken in verses 10 through 16, and then how to fix it beginning in chapter 2. But he begins with the leadership, he begins with the elders, and he says that they must be spiritually competent. Competent. No one is called to be an elder simply because they're willing, no one's called to be an elder simply because they are successful. Because they're a community leader or a business leader. What matters to Paul is the spiritual condition of the man's heart. What matters to Paul is the spiritual condition of the church's leadership. Because, and Ben was saying this even earlier in our Sunday school lesson, this this is very important. The healthier the leaders are, the healthier the church will be. And said, our sin affects others, right? How much more so those that we are looking to and imitating and called in Scripture to imitate. And As Paul is pointing out here, this can be seen and measured starting really primarily with the man's family relationships. Before any man is to serve as an elder in any church, it must be clear and obvious that he is above reproach. Verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Uh, Above reproach. Some versions say blameless there. This is the same place that Paul starts Timothy when he gives a a very, very similar list of uh, qualifications for the elders to him when he's addressing the very same subject. He is to be above reproach. This is kind of an umbrella term for all of the specific requirements that that follow here. And it means, the word above reproach, mean not chargeable with some offense. In other words, when you hear a claim against someone, your first reaction is that it's not credible. There's no way. You don't believe it because it's so out of character. Now, 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 let me ask you this. Ought this describe all of us? that we are above reproach? Clearly, this is a requirement for the elders here, but shouldn't this describe you as well? Shouldn't we all be able to be be people of whom no one suspects wrongdoing, of whom no one suspects immorality? We all know that there are certain occupations that bring immediate suspicion, right? Used car salesmen. Politicians. Lawyers, televangelists, there are certain occupations that bring immediate suspicion. Why is that? Because somewhere along the way, too many of them lived up to the reputation, right? We also probably all know, for example, a used car salesman who is not living up to that reputation, who is honest, right? Christian this jumping to conclusions should not be true about us when people hear the word Christian they should not immediately think that we are something evil or have a bad reputation especially among our leaders this should not be true now, the scripture here does not expect elders to be free of all faults, for then no one could serve. And this is, this is also not a it's not an internal evaluation, but an external community observation. Paul is not asking for elder candidates who are good intentioned. He's calling Titus to appoint elders who are known for their good reputation. Those who are keeping watch over our souls must be those whose life and character reflect Christ. Peter points to this over and over and over in his first letter. So for example, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Or in chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, Peter says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. In other words, as Christians, we should all be living lives and cultivating reputations that are above reproach, that are blameless. Now because of recent events, there's a lot of chatter out there right now about your reputation, the reputation of Christians, I read an article this week that asked a question and then came up with a thesis. The question was this, where were the January 6th insurrectionists radicalized? Does the language of that question sound familiar? There's an accusation of evil doing in that question, even terrorism. Well, Listen to the thesis of the article. This is the thesis. We must not neglect conservative Christian churches, schools, and homeschooling in addressing that question or we'll never be able to craft an effective counter-radicalization policy. We are called, as Christians, to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against us as evildoers, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, the day that Christ returns to judge the quick and the dead. The elders must show themselves in all respects to be a model of good works, And in their teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having, as Peter says, nothing evil to say about us. We are called to be above reproach. You are called to imitate leaders who are above reproach, blameless. And in fact, the litmus test for this is seen in the elders' family relationships. Look again at verse six. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Husband of one wife here means literally a one woman man. Throughout history, the sin associated with the failure to abide by God's pattern for marriage, his pattern for intimacy, has played out in all kinds of ways, right? ways that were unimaginable to us. I don't even have to give you examples because you have experienced this in one way or another. You've seen the destruction, maybe even firsthand, of a deviation for God's plan for marriage in your own families, extended families, and friends, I'm sure. Churches have been destroyed as a result of this sin. Some of you have experienced that. Families have been wrecked as a result of this sin. Some of you have experienced that. We could go on and on with the list of destruction. But in the church, Christians are called to be people of blameless fidelity, blameless faithfulness. All of us are called to this, right? That's not just exclusively for the elders. But the elders need to be able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This carries on to the next generation. We are to be people who, as Ephesians chapter 6 says, bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Here's the idea for uh, for discipleship. This is the the structure of the church, starting with the elders. Are his own children imitating him as he imitates Christ? Are they faithful, obedient, well-behaved children? In our leaders, we should find men who are faithfully and carefully discipling their children, teaching them to observe all of Christ's commands. We should see them giving instruction in sound doctrine and rebuking them when they contradict it. Even their own children. In fact, it should start there. And once again, this should be true of every Christian. Even those who are unmarried or without children. Just look at chapter 2. Yet what Paul is saying here is that the family is the natural beginning point for measuring a spiritual competence of a potential elder. But Christianity isn't measured only by outward appearances, but rather by looking at the heart. Just just as Jesus said in in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, he said, the the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So we must look to imitate Christ's character. His character. Look at verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So, having emphasized the, spiritual, the, the need for the spiritual competence in the home, Paul now moves to, to spiritual character, and he begins at the very same place. He is to be above reproach. He is to have blameless conduct. Again, the charges here shouldn't stick. And look at those five charges Look at those five accusations or five sins that you can see there in verse seven. Would they stick if you were accused of any of them? Would somebody look at those and think, yeah, that describes me? Now, I warned you at the beginning that there would be a whole bunch of law and seemingly not a lot of gospel here but right here is where I want us to pause and see the gospel. Because apart from Jesus Christ, none of us are qualified to be called Christian, let alone lead God's people. If Chris was here this morning, he would say amen. Apart from Christ, apart from his grace and mercy, I'm guilty of every single one of these charges, at least in my mind. If there were a real and true evaluation of my heart, I'm afraid that I would be found guilty and unqualified. And I'm telling you that the same is true for you. And yet while I'm working out my own salvation with fear and trembling, it is God who is working in me and he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ and praise God because this is his mercy and grace. This is where the sanctifying work of God comes in. But apart from him, none of us are even qualified to be called Christian, let alone elder or pastor. Praise God. And so when we look at these types of lists in the New Testament, we are confronted with what theologians sometimes call the third use of the law. See, it should be clear to us that this text is not just simply for elders, it's not just for those who minister the word, but is profitable for all believers to put into practice. Listen, look at this list here again in verse 7, look at those words. An overseer is God's steward, must be above reproach, must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, or greedy for gain. John Calvin says of this list, he says, Hear the apostle virtues by their opposites, as much to say that a man addicted to wine, stubborn, quarrelsome, and greedy for gain pollutes the place where he is and spoils the whole church. I'm not going to go through and define each of these things this morning. They're actually pretty self-explanatory. But it would be interesting to go through and compare The Pharisees and the Romans, particularly as we looked at them at the end of John's gospel, the leaders of the Pharisees, the leaders of the Romans, and compare and contrast them with what the elder is not to be here in this list of vices. I think it would be pretty easy to see that between the Pharisees and the Romans, most of the sins are regularly committed by worldly leaders. Most of those sins are regularly committed by worldly leaders. The elders, however, are not to be like this. In fact, the church is not to be like the world. The elders are to be like Christ, not like worldly leaders. But as we look at those five characteristics, I need to ask you this introspective question. Can those closest to you see those things in you even in secret? If they do, or if you do, and nobody else knows, let me give you a little bit of gospel hope. If you look at that list of sins and think to yourself, I'm guilty of these. Even in my heart, Jesus gives us some hope. First John, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I hope that you understand that in appointing stewards, God isn't charging uh, rulers to lord over you. He's giving you servants who will be able to care for the household of God. That's what he's doing. And so if we are to be a disciple making church, even within our own families, we will be putting these sins to death and it will begin from the top down in the church. Elders, put these sins to death in your own life. Deacons, put these sins to death in your own life. Husbands, fathers, put these sins to death in your own life. Ladies, put these sins to death in your own life. Kids, put these sins to death in your own life. We are not allowed, according to Scripture, to have leaders entangled in these things. Just as parents need to model Christ-like behavior for their children, so the elders of the church need to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We need to be putting these things to death and so we should all be blameless in character especially those who keep watch over our souls so we must also see in our leaders our elders a a tested spiritual commitment commitment look look at verses 8 and 9 this is on the flip side now but hospitable a lover of good self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. If the list in verse seven is a list of sins that we must stop doing, that we must run away from, that we must repent of, then verse eight are the things that we must put into practice. So again, if you, if you read verse 8 and you thought to yourself, I, I don't need any of this, I'm, I'm not an elder. There might be something wrong. <laughs> if you look at those list of traits in verse 8, we all, these should, this should describe all of us. Hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Let me put it this way. Do you have kids? There's a whole bunch of kids here. Do you want verse 8 to describe your kids? Especially if we define hospitality as sharing. Do we want verse 8 to describe even our kids? John MacArthur says even of hospitality right here, he wrote this. He said, a person who is hospitable gives practical help to anyone who is in need friend or stranger, believer or unbeliever. He freely offers his time, his resources, and his encouragement to meet the needs of others. Another commentary says, the need for hospitality is very great in our calloused, fractured, and chronically lonely Western society. That was written before the pandemic, before the world told us stay home. How much more is hospitality needed in this era of social distancing, stay-at-home orders? And so the question on that one that I have for you is, is there a place at your table for those who are in need of friendship and fellowship? Is there a place at your table for those who are in need of friendship and fellowship? Originally, at Logansville, when We added a couple years ago, we added a second meal per month to the calendar. And we called them elder lunches because the elders desired to show hospitality to to whomever would stay and eat with us so that we could get to know one another. And last week, we were packed again. We've kind of stopped calling them elder lunches because everybody just stays, which is great. I would say that 2020 was probably, you will agree with this, I would imagine, probably one of the most difficult years for hospitality in our lives. And so whatever your excuses are, I want to challenge you to show hospitality to one another, to to care for one another, because there are people here, even in this room, who need you, and you need them. Hospitality is part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, who said this, in Matthew chapter 25, he said, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. But this continues. It's not just hospitality. It continues with lover of good, self-controlled, upright, These point us to Philippians chapter four, verses eight and nine, which says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The elders should be, should be able to constantly say and live these qualities, these things for the church. And Paul adds another qualification. He says, holy. In this case, holy there means a devout enthusiasm for piety and worship. A qualified elder is one who loves to worship in the congregation. And of course, this means that, that this should be growing in our desire as well especially since Jesus himself said, be holy as I am holy, desiring to gather together to worship and praise God together. And then the final spiritual commitment there again is in verse nine, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught for two reasons, so that he may may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is a commitment to gospel truth, a commitment to correct doctrine, correct teaching. This one kind of bleeds into that next section, beginning in verse 10. But it's vital that those who teach God's word hold firm to God's word, right? This is true for elders, as we see here, but this is also true for families. Again, look at verse 11. They are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Upsetting whole families. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul tells Timothy right at the end of his life, he says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Men, the elders are here to protect the flock from these things, but you need to understand that you are your family's first line of defense when there come days of difficulty and false teachers start creeping in. The elders are here to protect the flock, the church, but husbands, You got a job to do as well. I praise God for the men in this church. These qualifications, as we look at them, and we just highlighted them, they're designed to be minimum standards for those who will lead, feed, and protect the flock of God. And these are qualities that are to be imitated as the church conforms to the image of Christ. And so if all you hear of this today is, is, is a weight of not measuring up, then I have bad news and I have good news. The bad news is you probably don't because on your own, none of us measure up. On our own, none of us measure up even to these minimum standards. But the good news is, is that Christ does. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I praise God that he, in the command, go and make disciples, has given us people that we can look to and say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I think of the people in my own life growing up. One would be my grandmother, who imitated Christ frequently every time I saw her. I'm here today because of Rachel Kidder. There were others. There are others that I interact with frequently, the men in this church. But we have a job to do with our own families in making disciples. My grandmother has no idea, well, she's in glory, so she knows, but she didn't know that I would be a pastor. I praise God that she was faithful. Let's pray together. Lord, as we think through these, as we hear your word, it is our prayer that you would um, press them deep into us, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would put to death the sins that so easily entangle us, that we would um, put on the Christ-likeness that we would be hospitable as we love one another, that we would be lovers of good as you are good, that we would be self-controlled because the Spirit is controlling us, that we would be upright, holy, and disciplined. Father, it is our prayer that we would hold firm to your trustworthy word, so that we may may be able to give instruction to whomever it is, whether it is our children, whether it is the younger men or younger women, that we might be able to give instruction and also to rebuke those who contradict it, that we might protect the purity of your church, that we might protect our families and our own hearts from lies of this world. We do not presume, as we come to the table this morning, Lord, we do not presume to trust in our own righteousness, but in your great mercies. We're not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs from your table, Lord, but you're merciful and gracious. And so grant us, therefore, so to commemorate and celebrate in the breaking of bread the death of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we may feed on him in our hearts by faith, and that we may be united to him and he to us, who with you and the Holy Spirit is worthy of eternal thanks and praise, Father, we pray these things this morning in Jesus' name, amen.